But let me pray. Our great God, we do want to confess to you our ability to want the wrong things. Uh, and we pray that you will please help us tonight to learn how to reverse that so that uh, the right things are the things we want most and everything else we can live with contentment. Teach us how to do that, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now look, we've got the, the Bible reading on the screen for the first bit. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You know the game, don't you? You do the Bible reading together. Okay? Short command. Ready? Tenth commandment goes like this. Three, two, one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Now, what I'm going to show you is a man who did that. That can just be words on a page. This is how it really happened one day, and this is where you find it in 1 Kings keep this passage open. 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said, said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I might have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I'll give you the value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went to his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Rise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. 
Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent words to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. There you are, that's a story of coveting in action. And we've seen how that is written in the history of the Bible. It happened. Okay, now what we're going to do is to pause, and the children are going to go to their groups, and then we'll carry on looking at that. So keep 1 Kings chapter 21 open. We've read about uh, Naboth and uh, Ahab. But we'll go back to the Tenth Commandment, which is that we should not covet anything that belongs to our neighbours, including uh, our neighbour's house, your neighbour's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey, my friends. Uh, how's that going to help you this week? seems a little bit like a different world, isn't it, to think of it like that? And it is important that we look at the Ten Commandments, the way the Bible wants us to look at it, not as something that is a set of rules for us to follow and obey, but as a gift that God is giving us. And we've seen right through the other nine commandments that there is more being given to us than meets the eye. And you see that with this commandment as well. Do not covet. It sounds negative, doesn't it? It literally means in the Hebrew, do not have strong desires. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Don't have strong desires. Now, we might just think, okay, there might be some people that agree with us at this point. So, for example, I would imagine that Buddhists would generally agree with uh, the sentiment of having no strong desires. I grew up in a Buddhist country. Uh, I'm not the only one here today. Uh, and uh, uh, in Buddhism, uh, they understand, I think rightly, that uh, if you have strong desires, it can lead to sadness and uh, disappointment and disillusionment. And so 
Uh, the whole point of Buddhism is to put down strong desires. You don't end up uh, being misled and uh, destroyed by your emotions. So Buddhists might agree with this, but the vast amount of English people are likely to say, yuck. This is exactly what we don't like about Christianity. Uh, it confirms our worst fears. Christianity is all about being colorless, having no desires whatsoever. You just live this flat, boring, monotonous life. And so people think of us like that. But I want to suggest to you that this command is here in the Bible to give us deep happiness. In fact, all the commands are there to give us deep happiness. So the command uh, not to, uh, to, to, to basically honour our parents is there to give us uh, loving homes that are secure. The command not to commit murder is to give us loving relationships outside the home with others. The command not to commit adultery is to give us a degree of faithfulness and trusting uh, our society that we wouldn't otherwise have. The desire that we saw last week uh, not to, uh, to steal um, uh, is, is, is to give us a society where there is generosity instead in its place. And in fact, actually last week we looked at the command um, uh, not to bear false witness so we could trust uh, and uh, uh, build up people with our conversations. What a society that would be. And now we've got this command that will deliver deep happiness. It'll deliver us happiness with God. We're going to look at that. It'll deliver us happiness with each other, and then thirdly, it will deliver us happiness within ourselves. Let me go through each of those three things one at a time. First, it makes us happy with God. Believe you me, the Bible is not against strong desires. You and I were built to have strong desires, but we were built to have strong desires for Him. And therefore, it is not the way of Buddhism that we go, where we want to eliminate our strong desires. What the Bible wants us to do is not eliminate them, but to redirect them to where they rightly belong, which is to God himself. And if they're not attached and fixed to God, then what happens is we attach them to other things that will never satisfy. I suppose you could say it's a bit like having a roast beef dinner. Everybody loves a roast beef dinner. And if you were to simply offered um, a Yorkshire pudding, it wouldn't quite be the same. Uh, it wouldn't fulfill that appetite that you have for something greater. And in the same way, our taste buds of life are built to have an appetite for God. And if we settle on anything less, it will never be satisfying or fulfilling in the same way. In fact, if we put our uh, happiness and uh, our taste buds on other things, uh, let me pause here for a minute and uh, give you something I should have given you earlier. Um, 
And the first uh, reference that you see for the English translation, which I haven't got now. Um, right, okay. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 4, verses 18 19. Uh, remember how Jesus told the parable of the sower sowing seeds in four different grounds? Here's the one that fell on soil three, and he says, Those seeds, the others, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and, notice, the desire for other things, that's where the coveting comes, they enter in, they choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, what happens is when we settle our hearts on other things less than God, then what happens is that oh, we have the oxygen choked out of us. And so therefore we find ourselves uh, fighting uh, for breath to live when we find ourselves distracted into loving other things and wanting other things more than we want God himself. And this is God really saying to us in this command, do not push me out by putting any desire instead of me. Do not stop me being the central desire of your life because your happiness will depend on me being the center and uh, nothing else will come close. But you notice how the Bible is realistic and it tells us that there are many other options that we might want to go for instead. So in the command itself, we're told about the neighbor's wife, the neighbor's ox, uh, the neighbor's house. In other words, there's a whole wide variety of different things that belong to other people that we might have our hearts going after. And it's not an exclusive list. Uh, you can run on and say that uh, there are people today who would say, if only I had a loving relationship in my life, uh, instead of being single or uh, whatever it is. If only I had children, if I got no children, if only I had a better job, if I'm working in something that is uh, boring. If only I had a nicer place to live, if only I had better work colleagues, if only I had better neighbors, if only I had better people living in my house with me as flatmates, if only I had uh, a more reliable car. Um, well, you name it, you can put all the other uh, things in its place. The list goes on and on. And we can have a sort of, if only, longing for difference in the past. If only I had, uh, was born in a different, better country. If only I had better parents uh, and a different upbringing. If only I had a better education if only I had more brains, if only I had a better figure and looked more attractive, and we keep going and think, if only I had that, my life would be complete. And that's what leads us to envy. But happiness in God comes at it completely differently. Happiness in God says, look, God made me the way I am. He made me my mother's womb. Therefore, I had the right mother. I've built the right way. I've grown up with the right parents. I've grown up with just the right upbringing. I'm just the person that God has made to find my happiness in Him. 
God has made me to find my happiness in him. I will not find it looking anywhere else. My happiness will be with God. If only I press my clicker a little bit more often, you see pictures to go with that. Uh, and that is the main uh, message and we get caught up in thorns in Mark chapter 4 if we miss it. But there's also, isn't there, something about happiness with others. And you see that in this picture of Ahab and Naboth. And you can see when envy comes into the picture, and Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, there was no happy relationship between the two of them. And so it uh, became uh, very sad. And in the same way, you can see in the New Testament... Uh, something like that. If you look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, I've written it in that sheet of paper of yours. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's Ahab and Naboth, isn't it? You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friends, those are very simple words. Anybody can understand them. But can you see how in a very simple way you get every single international tension explained in this? You don't need a PhD to understand what goes on. All that happens when there's international tension is that people ultimately want more land or they want more wealth or they want more influence. Now that happens internationally but it happens as we saw with Naboth and uh, Ahab uh, personally and individually as well. Now the names have changed. No one's called Naboth or um, uh, uh, Ahab now. It's Tom and Harry maybe but when Tom has something that uh, Harry wants <coughs> then there's going to be no easy friendship between the two of them. And how much better to have a relationship where there is oneness with each other. So rather than seeing the other person's advantage, you see perhaps what they may not have. And so therefore you start moving towards them with uh, care and compassion and encouragement and generosity. And then instead of envy you replace a relationship with gratitude and with closeness and with love. So there is a happiness that comes from uh, our relationship with God and a new happiness that we can find uh, in our relationship with others. But the important one, I think, perhaps, that is probably going to... Oh, yes, that's where the uh, fighting starts. But the new relationship that we have is with each other. There is a happiness that we have within ourselves when we get this right. I remember how dear old King Ahab, uh, when he couldn't get what he wanted, he went home and he sucked. Now, that's a terrible thing. Do you remember when you were... Uh, young and you didn't get what you wanted and you lay on your bed just like that and you sucked. Yes, well, there's uh, 
uh, someone nodding very vigorously at the back. Uh, and, and kids do that, don't they? Yes, Abigail, they do. And it's very sad when you see a child having the socks because they didn't get what they wanted. Much sadder when a grown man, and very pathetic when the grown man happens to be a king, and he's acting like this. And so it is a terrible thing. You won't know happiness in yourself. There is a picture that illustrates what uh, it might like, it might feel like. And that's why God, when he puts his hand on his people, he makes one massive dramatic difference in their lives and they go from coveting to contentment. And you see that wonderfully in the life of the Apostle Paul and I've written down here if, if Philippians chapter 4 uh, verses 10 to 13 and uh, I'll read that to you this is the Apostle Paul speaking now remember he's writing this letter from prison and he puts down these words I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what had happened with the Apostle Paul was he was in prison and these people had sent him a gift of money to look after him and he says, well, that's very kind of you, but I have learnt to be content. And I can manage with hunger and I can manage with abundance. And he has learnt the secret of contentment. I guess it helps to try and get it clear what contentment probably means. Here's my definition, it may help you. I think contentment is having unchanging joy in changing circumstances. So poor circumstances changed, he had hunger and he had abundance. Those circumstances were changing all the time right throughout his life but he had unchanging joy, he was content. Contentment is unchanging joy in changing circumstances. And he says at the end of that, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, often people get that verse wrong and they take it to mean I can do anything and you know, become managing director of a company if I wanted because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No, it's not that that the Bible is teaching us in context it means learning how to live in contentment so how does God strengthen me to live in contentment I want to suggest to you it works like this that if we understand and are absolutely deeply gripped and convinced by the fact that God has enormous love for us and that he has his hand on the regulator of our lives controlling everything and he can either turn it one way so that we have abundance 
or turn it the other way so we have hunger. Whatever those situations, if we understand that he is the one in command and his command is used in love towards us, then there is enormous strength. There is no greater strength found than understanding that there is a God who controls who you can trust in the changing situations of your life and the circumstances of your life. And so Paul can do all things through him who strengthens him. He understands that God is the one with his hand of the regulator, the one in control. And therefore, even when he has hunger, he has joy in God's love, in the provisions that are coming his way, even when he almost has no provisions coming his way. As a lovely old Christian writer who once wrote, enjoy the dew of God's blessings. You know what dew is? Dew is what rests on the grass when there's been no rain, but you wake up in the morning, the grass is slightly wet, and it feels like it's refreshed. Now, if you get round really close, you will see there's a little bit of a drop of water on the grass. Now, it's not a huge amount. It's not a lake. It's just dew. But you can enjoy the dew of God's blessing. There are always little droplets in your life that you can savor and thank God for. Enjoy the dew of God's blessing. But there's another way in which you might enjoy uh, God and his goodness. And that is to understand that ultimately in the fullness of the Bible we are promised that if we belong to Jesus one day, this world will actually belong to you. And therefore why covet when it's going to be yours one day anyway? It's a bit like an estate manager. Uh, he might have a great estate to look after, he might have prominence, he might have um, uh, a high reputation, he might have a large uh, estate manager's house, he might have a large estate manager's car, and there's the little boy next to him who's got absolutely nothing, but he just happens to be the heir. One day all of that will belong to him. Now that's what it's like to be believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, whatever you have or don't have now, it will be yours. Let that filter in and soak through. There is contentment in knowing that uh, God is your Father and everything in this world will be yours. But what do we learn from all that? Um, let's uh, see, there are three things that we might want to take home. First, it may be that you are someone who is not yet uh, thought it through as to what it means to uh, follow uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, got that? Uh, um, I'm not quite sure what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not even uh, call yourself Christian and you want to know what difference it makes between a Christian and a non-Christian. Let me suggest it's like this. It's not actually according to what you do. The difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is actually seen in what you want. What your heart desires. 
Because here there is a massive difference when someone begins to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Previously, it works like this. Someone's heart is full of desires for all sorts of material, uh, life-advancing things. And perhaps there is very little spiritual appetite for God. But once you become a Christian, all that changes. And you suddenly have a massive uh, desire for God and you have uh, a new love for him, a new gratitude towards him uh, there is new trust there is now a heart full of joy for the dew of his blessings for the future that he promises and other things that once filled the screen are now that much less important my friends, the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is a person who says, I've had enough Yorkshire pudding. I want roast dinner. I want my heart filled with the one desire that will fill it, and that is God himself. If you're someone like that, it'd be lovely to ask just for you to go to, your, to, to, your, to, to God and say, God, please would you do that? I've chased after and attached my heart to the wrong things. I want it to be full of you. Talk to him in that way. What happens if you've hung around churches quite a bit in your life and lots of people have? And there are many church-tending people around. And we might just think, oh, well, in that case, we've got this all sorted, haven't we? I want to suggest to you that it might be helpful to look at the heart of the Pharisee. Now the Pharisee in the New Testament stands for the person who knew all about God, who would say that they belonged to God, and who were therefore, they would say, very loyal to him. And it is very interesting how Jesus again and again goes to them to expose a religious person who isn't really in the kingdom of God. And you see that with uh, uh, the Pharisees in this area of contentment. Yes, they were ferociously, tenaciously loyal to God, but they were largely joyless people. And they hadn't learnt contentment. And so when Jesus talks to them, you can see in the last reference that we've got, Luke chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, how Jesus then says the difficulty with the Pharisee looks a bit like this on the screen. You grow an extra heart and you start loving other things as well as loving God. You try and put the two together. And Jesus says you can't do that. No servant can serve two masters, rather he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. But there's a danger there for the religious person, isn't there? That uh, it is possible for us to be quite Pharisee-like. That there's a lot of tick boxes that we can say we believe and do and hold on to. But in the end, that contentment isn't there and it gives the game away.
And my friends, if that's you, it would be wonderful to be honest at, at this point, rather than to do what the Pharisees did, which is to simply write Jesus off and to say, well, that particular thing doesn't apply to me. When the reality is, his words had exposed their hearts. What happens if you want to be a real believer of the Lord Jesus? Well, I just want to point out to you uh, what uh, it says in Philippians chapter 4. Actually, it's verse 13. The numbers aren't here on the page I printed. But in verse four, uh, 12, it says that he has learned in whatever situation he is to be content. Contentment is a lesson to be learned. Not automatic, it's a lesson to be learned. And here's the point. You are the one and you are the only one who can be your teacher. And I'll tell you how to be your own teacher in this. You need to learn to give yourself little talks and to tell yourself when you find your heart wanting something to say, you know, that isn't actually going to be delivering you uh, the happiness that you think it will. Why don't you instead enjoy the dew of God's blessing? And when you see the dews of God's blessing mounting up in your life, say, now come on, praise God, isn't he generous? Look at the dew of God's blessing that he has brought into you today. And talk to yourself about your future. One day, all of this will belong to you. Why do you want it so desperately and passionately and all-consumingly now? It will belong to you. Just be patient. It's yours. It's coming. It's a wonderful thing to give ourselves little talks to learn how to be our own teacher in this matter. So learn to talk to yourself. I know it's an annoying habit if someone else happens to be in the room and you're walking around the place kicking the wall saying, you idiot, you've fallen for it again. Um, uh, it's all right if you're in a house where you're already known as insane. Uh, people don't mind so much. Uh, but it can be distracting on the tube station, I must say. But nonetheless, uh, forget it, uh, what other people think. Talk to yourself. It's what the Bible calls meditation. When you meditate in your heart, you're essentially talking to yourself in your heart. Talk to yourself in this way. Be your teacher. Learn the secret of contentment. And do not envy. I'm going to suggest that we have a moment to pause and pray. So I'm going to stop the tape for a minute. Uh, and so, Father, we do want to come before you with uh, humility, uh, confessing to you that often uh, the root cause, the reason why we are dissatisfied or uh, disappointed is because uh, there is a discontent and we see others doing better, getting more, we want what doesn't belong to us. And so often, like King Ahab, 
we find our hearts in our uh, boots and our uh, sadness increasing. We pray that you would please enable us instead to learn the joy of deep happiness in you, loving you and being grateful to you for all your goodness to us. Help us through seeing the needs of others to reach out in order that we might uh, not be envious but uh, serving and caring instead. And we pray that you would please enable us to learn that secret of contentment. Help us to instruct each other, uh, to instruct ourselves with great wisdom. And we pray that you will uh, bring us to new joy as we apply this commandment to our lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.